back to the Village Oak Tree. Today is October 11, 2023. And my name is Terrence O'Donnell, and I have come back to your digital village with more news from around the world and a discussion about something specific on the second half that I hope will get your attention. So this once-a-week podcast is hosted on RSS.com. It's also available on Spotify, Amazon Music, Samsung Podcast, Podcast Index, Listen Notes, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Pandora, TuneIn, Google Podcasts until 2024, and Deezer. This show is free to subscribe to for now on these mobile apps with the donation tab on the Village Oak Tree webpage at rss.com. Much like passing the hat at the end of my visit to your village. So I appreciate it if you guys would figure out a way to do that and maybe give me a little support. Um, it would go a long way toward making this thing get better. The other part is share this podcast as much as possible for everybody you know. You don't need to be a member of any kind of online publication or anything else. This podcast is free. Just download it on your app and go for it. Listen to it, pass it on, because everything that I give you these days is very important to your health and well-being. So a little about me. I'm of Irish descent, and I'm a self-professed Sean K which is a Gaelic storyteller. So I want all the listeners here to feel like we're sitting underneath your village oak tree where I bring you headlines and my take from news feeds and relevant blog articles that I think are important, but sometimes lost in the shuffle of cable news. Now, I've got a very, very mixed bag of stuff for you this week, and so I'm not going to kind of mess around a little bit. So I will tell you that for every article I give you, I'm going to make an embed link on the news um, on the newsletters, and you can read the read the stories if you want. Uh, we'll tell you though if you're going to read anything um, that's linked to a medium or a Substack article, you're going to have to have a subscription, unfortunately. So I also post everything in the blog section of my website at crombiha.com, which you'll hear more about that during the break, which I will take once we get through with all the headlines. My second half this week is about book banning. It's a really big deal here in the United States. Of course, it's been a thing now for since anybody can remember, but it's making a lot of headlines here in the United States. So let's get into the news stories. Now, I got a bunch of stories listed here, but like anything else, everybody and their brother around the world right now is paying all attention to what's going on over there in the Middle East. Um, the Hamas terrorist group invaded Israel, basically, and killed a lot, a lot of people. And now Israelis are taking vengeance, and they're killing a lot, a lot of people. And, and of course, everybody's worried about it, whether it's going to escalate. Well, given the fact that Netanyahu wants to wipe out the Palestinians, along with all his cronies, it's not a far cry to imagine that that's exactly what they're probably going to do. They're going to push the Palestinians into the sea, whoever they don't kill off, and be done with it. Um, is that going to do anything for Hezbollah and Hamas? Yeah, they're still going to fight with the Israelis. The question of the day is, who paid for all of that? Okay. Now, you know, Hamas and Hezbollah have been kind of low-key, low-funded groups, uh, you know, try to fight off the Israelis for decades, and nobody ever, you know, we paid them attention, but we didn't give them anything other than attention. But now, all of a sudden, 
they found a way to do this. So the big question is, and a lot of people are asking, who paid for all that? Who paid for Hamas to grab a bunch of weapons and attack Israel? I bet you that's going to come out here soon. Some intrepid reporter somewhere is going to figure it out and it'll blow up all over the place. So is this going to be World War III? Well, we all hope not, obviously. But all those Bible thumpers out there and evangelicals are reading revelations right now. I bet you they're all thumping about that, saying, oh, this is the start of it. This is what is, you know, proclaimed in revelations and yada, yada, yada. You know, meanwhile, the rest of us got to look out and see what's going to happen. So the big thing about that is the Palestinians are caught in the middle. And, you know, some of them support Hamas and Hezbollah, obviously. Well, the only reason they're doing that is because the Israelis have been persecuting them since forever, for decades. You know, and, you know, you get tired of being pushed at and pushed down and treated like second-class citizens, and you eventually want to fight back. So, apparently they're fighting back. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see how that all turns out. So now we're going to bring everything back here to the United States. My first story for you is... An educational story sorts. It's also a racist story. Louisiana student punished by school for dancing at private party. Kaylee Timone was stripped of student government title and denied scholarship support after video surfaced of her at a party. This came out in the Guardian.com US News by Carl Murphy Marcos. So even in public schools now, white Christian people are telling students that their off-campus activities that don't meet their Christian standards call for punishment in the name of their religious beliefs. Remember what I said before, these white Anglo-Saxon Christians are coming for all non-believers to make them conform or to be punished for their so-called sins. You know, and the big thing about that is that this white principal overreached himself by punishing this young lady who happens to be black, if you haven't figured that out already, and for what she did off campus. When, there wasn't even a school day. Now, yes, the party was sponsored by the school, but it was off campus. So what's wrong with her dancing like that? There's nothing wrong with it. Well, the update is, principal decided to go on leave from all the backlash. You know, of course, it's not going to stop these conservative white Anglo-Saxon Christians from doing this again in the future, because you know somebody will. But I'm telling you, people need to reach out and say, no more. My next story is comes from the 74million.org. Chiefs out in half of districts where Moms for Liberty flipped boards last year. That means school boards. The right-wing parents group has shown itself to be highly organized, one leader said, but could face roadblocks in 2024. So for anybody here in the United States, this conservative group has been making headlines for a while now with all their right-wing efforts to take over school boards across the United States. They've been having a lot of success in places like Florida and other red states, causing teachers and administrators who won't toe their white Christian line. These are the people largely responsible for all the book bans in public schools and some public libraries. In some states, they're behind the push to bring Christianity into the public school systems again. Now, after some time in the limelight, some school districts are starting to push back. 
It will be interesting to see how long the group's financial backing remains intact. And that's usually how that goes. So the last time I read about these people, there was a, a news story here about a month ago or so saying that they were getting backed by some billionaire conservative donators. They were donating to their cause. Well, that's probably going to stop if they get pushback because most of the time these billionaires want to remain in the hot, you know, in the shadows. They don't want anybody to know that they're donating this money. But at the same time, school districts are starting to push back against these crazy moms saying, hey, you know, you're going too far. I hope it goes because I'm telling you, these women just need to stand down. All right. I don't have a problem with parents getting involved with their school boards, but they need to do it the right way and not all this abusive behavior. So now, you know, most of my stories, next few couple of stories are educational stories. Schools. I didn't say educational. The racist and bigotry in schools all rolled in together. So my next one, when neighborhood schools won't cut it, black families opt out. Most parents aren't willing to gamble with their children. If they can't find suitable schools, they simply opt out of the system. And black parents are now divesting from Chicago public schools and the city altogether by Alden Laurie in the Chicago Sun-Times. Black families in Chicago are often not sending their children to poorly run and dilapidated schools and looking for alternatives. 40% of the white parents in the Chicago area are sending their kids to private schools now. It's a sad state of affairs for the Illinois school systems, but it's just a microcosm of the school systems across the country. And to fight over curriculum, books, teachers, and administrators with the right political leanings and money to keep the roofs from leaking, among other major structural issues nationwide. The U.S. is lagging far behind our worldwide peers in education, and it's getting steadily worse. It's become a culture war between the have and have-nots being waged in the school systems, and the kids are caught, victims caught in a crossfire between the parents and the school boards. And so that's kind of what it's all about, really. You've got these white conservative groups of people, parents, and they're objecting to what the public schools are teaching. And so they're doing all this curriculum changes all over the place in, in a lot of states. And because of all of that, it's causing a lot of other people who aren't don't want to be involved in all that to pull their kids out of school and say, hey, we're done here. Or like I told you guys about in Idaho, where the schools are literally crumbling and falling down on the kids' heads, you know, having to wear coats in the winter and and sweating their butts off in the summer because there's no infrastructure. And it's not just Idaho. Chicago's, you know, inter-school systems are having these problems. Um, you know, rural schools in Texas are having these problems. And, and so it goes. But like I said, because of all of this stuff, teachers are leaving, going to other schools, are quitting altogether. Administrators are doing the same, leaving schools empty, basically, with nobody to teach and kids going away. They're having to close schools, which is another article I brought to you from Louisiana here a couple of weeks ago. So what's going to be? Because of all of this, educational standards in the United States are falling off dramatically. We are nowhere near our Western peers uh, in Europe and in Asia. Of course, we've been behind Asia for a couple of decades, but the fact that we're way behind Europe now, that's that should tell you something. 
So my next story is about indigenous peoples here in North America. This came from Shondin Silversmith, the Oklahoma Voice. New report finds another 115 indigenous boarding schools, most run by missionaries. This came out of McAllisterNews.com. And, you know, the story comes from Oklahoma. And it's a state that has the largest indigenous tribal population in the U.S. They report that all the missionary schools that weren't necessarily counted when totaling up the government-sponsored boarding, boarding schools, they were run by churches, which were every bit of cruel, if not more so, um, than the federal schools. And, you know, their idea of trying to integrate the children into white Christian North American society. And with, well, it, it wasn't real successful, let's put it that way. It caused a lot of trauma, separated families, a lot of dead children, and so on and so forth. And the thing is, reparations won't bring back the dead or heal the sick, the mentally sick. It's another sick, sad chapter in the history of white descendants of European colonizers, much on par with the enslavement of the Africans. And, you know, it's, it's a very sad story because these Christian missionaries you know, got the man, you know, got the idea from the federal, well, they gave the idea in a lot of ways to the federal government that the only way to stop the Indians from being Indians and attacking white people was to take the Indian out of the Indian. And that's what these boarding schools were intended to do. But like I said, they, they separated, basically stole children from the tribes and put them in these schools, soldiers, and, you know, the soldiers did all the work. And once the, once the schools got a hold of these kids, it was a mess. A lot of them died, malnutrition, punishments, um, you know, disease, you name it. And, you know, it's, it's a really sad state of affairs. Next one. This is kind of a political story in some ways, uh, but it goes to in somewhat, I want to say, population environment. Aging states to college graduates. We'll pay you to stay. Most states desperate for skilled workers are helping them pay off their student loans. This came out of the HetchingerReport.org. Poor, mostly rural states have been losing their young people for decades and are now so desperate for people, they're offering monetary incentives for them to stay on after graduating from colleges in their states. Upper New England states are the most notable ones here in this article, but certain western states are also taking notice, like Iowa. As the American population grows older and the baby boomers pass on more and more every year, this can have a big effect on how certain states maintain their services to the citizens or not. And they want to stop immigrants from coming. I think somebody in this country needs to wake up, smell the roses. You know, the big thing about it is, is, is a lot of reports are saying the population of the white Anglo-Saxon descendants of the Europeans is, is declining and is starting to ramp, you know, the decline is starting to get sharper year after year. And the other part of it is there's a big fear amongst them about being replaced by all these so-called immigrants. So they want to stop the immigrants from coming in. So you can't have it both ways. Your population's going down. You need to replace the population in order to keep things going. I mean, who do you think pays the taxes? These immigrants come in and they become citizens and they start paying their taxes like anybody else. They probably don't complain about it near as much as, as the white people do. But you want to stop them from coming. Why is that? 
Is that, you know, are you afraid of being replaced? Well, get over it. As far as these rural states is concerned, I mean, great. Offer incentives to get the kids to stay on after college. But the big thing is give them jobs. If you give them a good job, they're more likely to stay. I mean, a lot of them don't really have a problem with it. Uh, depends on where you go. I know when I used to live in Maine, I had, you know, even all a few years ago that I still lived up there, there was a big problem with older population, younger people all leaving for big cities and, and going to colleges and leaving the state. It was a big issue. You know, since I left, Maine's passed laws up there to keep the kids in, giving them free college if they'll stay, if they'll stay in Maine once they graduate and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all these states are, especially New England, um, are seeing the, seeing the problem and doing something about it. Now, what about the rest of the country? Are they going to follow, you know, they're going to follow the trend here? Well, let's wait and see. So now we're going to get into environmental stuff. My next article comes out of newsyahoo.com. Um, I got it from somewhere else, but it was in, you know, Yahoo News. These tiny forests are popping up in cities around the country and are having a shocking effect on community by Leo Collis. A small environmental article about how local communities are growing native flora to combat urban decay around the world with a lot of success. Just goes to show you that when communities decide to work together, they can accomplish a lot more than big governments. Well, let's hope the trend continues and expands. You know, basically what they're talking about is urban community gardens, um, you know, rooftop stuff or, you know, empty land, maybe an empty lot somewhere and communities are getting together and turn them into gardens. Some of them for vegetable gardens, some flower gardens, but it doesn't really matter. Gardens are gardens. It's all good for the environment. This one also I picked out of, out of yahoo.news. Um, you know, it came out of a different uh, news article, news company. Um, but, you know, irregardless, you can pick it up here. Woman sparks outrage after recording infuriating scene in Target parking lot. Shame on you, she quotes, by Sarah Klimek. So it's a video, a TikTok video that went viral over a dumpster full of unopened boxes of food that could have been donated to food banks and charities. The big thing about this is when the lady videoed these things, they were still frozen, which means they had just been pulled from the store. Brand new boxes, never been opened, still frozen. They could have been donated. So this is the second article in the last couple of days about this. So food waste is a big issue all over the world. And I was reading about it this morning that Western countries waste about 30% of all the food that we that we have in the grocery stores. We buy it and then we throw it out. It either we don't eat it in a timely fashion, but the biggest part of it is these stores. So they have expiration dates on everything they sell. So they buy it wholesale, sell it retail, and it has as you know a limit of when they have to sell it by in order to meet the federal guidelines. Well, they just end up throwing this stuff out. Okay? I mean they do. So it goes into these dumpsters and ends up in a landfill, which makes things even worse. So why can't they donate to food banks? I mean, right now, there's a lot of communities out there that have a lot of people who are going hungry. And they would love to have this kind of food. I mean, most food banks I know of have donated chest freezers and upright freezers in their food banks. 
they could store all this stuff for and keep it going for a while. But no, they throw all this stuff out. All right. Well, hopefully maybe something like this will get them, get their attention. My next one is it's about weather and it's environmental. Um, this came out of the DW.com. UNICEF extreme weather events displaced millions of children. And I got this on October 6th. A new, a new UN report says that more than 43 million children were uprooted between 2016 and 2021 due to weather disasters fueled by climate change. So it's, this report says that China and the Philippines are among the nations with the most displacements due to extreme weather events. Flooding and wildfires are having a devastating effect on children worldwide, and it's only going to continue to get worse. You know, yes, China and the Philippines got hit with a bunch of typhoons. And so, yes, they had big floods, children, you know, massively affected. But this also applies to almost every country in the world right now. Children are being displaced because their parents are being displaced. And so it goes. But, you know, climate migrations are huge right now. And the children are probably suffering the worst for it. So here's another article here. This comes back to the United States. Saltwater threat to Louisiana drinking water to grow across U.S. experts warn. Louisiana residents face crisis as seawater penetrates Mississippi, but scientists say other coastal cities likely be affected over, over time. This came out of the Guardian U.S. News by Darna Noor. So saltwater intrusion into freshwater supplies for the coastlands of North America is becoming a real thing now. Louisiana is just the biggest newsworthy place for now, but more will come. Think about Miami. Climate destruction is well underway around the world, and climate migration will be picking up even more as places around the world become more uninhabitable. So this is another example of, of a potential uninhabitable space. If anybody doesn't know, New Orleans and any of the communities on the south side of New Orleans are below sea level. And this is why they have seawalls in place, to get the salt water out. Well, because the Mississippi River suffered under the drought here this last year or so, and it got so low that they couldn't even move the barges through it. It's letting seawater in up through the river deltas and is migrating up into, into the um, potable water sections up in Louisiana. So, you know, the, the Army Corps of Engineers is going to try to do something about it, but, you know, it's only a Band-Aid. So not only are we talking about New Orleans and other Louisiana coastal communities, you have communities in, in Mississippi, Alabama, and Georgia and Florida and, and uh, you know, the Atlantic coast, Carolinas, even here where I live in Virginia, everybody who lives near the ocean is going to start having problems with salt water getting into your fresh water. It's, it's coming, okay? Louisiana is just the first salvo. So now we're going to get into social injustice here. My next article comes from overseas, and it comes from a place where I was actually stationed at in Desert Storm. The story is they were deported to build a U.S. naval base. Now they want reparations by Deneen L. Brown in the Washington Post. So it's a story that's paywall by the Washington Post, so you might not be able to get, you might not be able to read it. The Chagos Islanders want their homes back. And then if you don't know who they are, they used to live on a place 
uh, called the British Indian Ocean Territories of Diego Garcia and the islands around him. That whole island chain is called the Chagos Islands. Diego Garcia is just the biggest island amongst them. So they want their homes back, and the British and Americans won't let them, mainly the Americans. And the reason for that is because the Americans have a huge base there. They get a big naval seaport. They get a huge, big air, you know, the Air Force has got a big runway there. Of course, the U.S. Navy uses it as well, but all that kind of stuff. And yeah, the British get to use it, uh, although the, the Americans would love to muscle them out of there. And the thing about it is, the island chain used to belong to Mauritius back when they were a British colony. So the British made a deal with the Americans to let them build a very strategic base there in the late 1960s and make it very secret. And it's still, they still try to make it very secret to this day. Although most of the known world knows about it now after Desert Storm. I was stationed there back in 1991. Mauritius was granted independence in 1968, but the British kept the Chagos Islands and deported, sometimes forcefully, all of the islanders because the Americans cried, national security, national security. When I was there, the evidence of their lives was everywhere, but the British keepers limited access to all the artifacts. You had to actually have get a special pass from the British in order for you to travel off the American side of the island and into the British-owned areas where the original Chagos Islanders used to live. You know, part of my work there that I had to do, um, it required me once a month to go over to the other side of the island, but once a month we had to go get a special pass from the Brits in order for us to do our jobs. The islanders are now fighting to get their homeland back, but the British and Americans are doing everything they can to stop them, all in the name of American national secrecy. I call it imperialism. Once again, the Americans have played the bullies across the world stage, and it may cost them now as they're growing weaker right behind their British parents. And so what's going on over there in the Chagos Islands is all these islanders got pushed off the island, sometimes forcefully, as I mentioned, and they got sent to Mauritius, where they've been living in poverty in a lot of ways ever since. Well, now they want to go home. And they have petitioned everybody and their brother and including the world court, to let them go home. Well, of course, the British, when, when all this happened here a few years ago, the British came around and said, all right, we claim these islands. They're now British Indian Air, you know, ocean territory belonging to us. They're now a British colony. And so that was how they were able to keep them out. Well, now that the Brits are kind of fumbling around and having a hard time hanging on to their colonies, this may change. Well, if the world court tells the Brits, hey, you got to let these people back home. That could change things for the Americans. The Americans might have to put up with some islanders down there on the south side of the island uh, setting up homes again. That's going to go over real well in Washington, D.C. This one comes from El Salvador. These women say their babies were stillborn. Courts convicted them of homicide in a country with harsh abortion laws by Catherine E. Shoche in CNN. S-H-O-I-C-H-E-T. I hope I pronounced that right. If the Americans want to look into what a hard ban on abortion looks like, take a look at El Salvador. They passed a no-exceptions law 25 years ago, and if you have a stillborn baby, you go to jail. If any baby is born dead for any reason, the mothers go to jail for years. 
This is what the anti-abortion people want from the United States. So the question is, is this what you want? Ask yourself, do you want to be like El Salvador? Because this article goes into depth about these women who didn't get the medical care they needed. Babies were born, stillborn. In this case, the one example they give, the, the baby was like eight months along, eight to nine months along. She had an abortion in her bathroom. Well, it wasn't an abortion. It was just born, stillborn uh, at eight to nine months. Well, she went to jail for 10 years um, just because they blamed it on her. So we're going to come back here to the United States, not too far in the United States, because this is going out of the Rio Grande River in Texas. Um, and this has to do with environmental sort of environmental politics. Tensions rise in the Rio Grande Basin as Mexico lags in water deliveries to the U.S. In 2020, rebellious Mexican farmers occupied a dam in parts of Chihuahua State to prevent the federal government from sending its reservoir water to Texas under a 1944 treaty. With the clock ticking toward another treaty deadline, the two sides are struggling for a solution by Martha Paskowski, Inside Climate News. Photos by Omar Arnelas in the El Paso Times. So as I said, this comes from InsideClimateNews.org. More news from the water wars front. How many of you knew that we had a lopsided treaty from 1944 that mandates Chihuahua State, Mexico, to give the Texan Americans a lot of their water over the course of a five-year cycle? With all the current drought conditions, Mexico is behind in our quota. Yeah, no, yeah, no surprise. It's not the first time, but the climate conditions the way they are right now is doubtful they'll make it up anytime soon or in many more lifetimes ahead. Now the Mexican farmers in Eurasia may fight back again like they did in 2020. Question is, will they win out again this time? So to give you an idea of what happened last time in 2020, Mexico basically didn't fight them too hard and gave Texas their quota out of other sources. Texas is on the verge of sending American troops across the border to take on the cartels. So question is, would they also go down to Chihuahua and steal the water from the farmers in delicious Mexico? Would that be right on, you know, it might be right on the way. More evidence of American imperialism, especially from Texas. Seriously, if I was Mexico, I would seriously want to renegotiate this, given climate, climate destruction going on right now. I would seriously want to renegotiate that treaty. I seriously don't think the Texans deserve that water. They need to stay put on their side of the border and leave Mexico alone and let the Mexicans have their own water. They don't need to give it. They, you know, Texas, you know, the idea is it's supposed to be a, it's supposed to be a reciprocal agreement every five years. But to be honest with you, I bet you anything, Texas is probably sticking it to them and still demanding their quota. So now we're going to get into politics. My next story came up here in the last day or so. North Carolina Republicans are creating a secret police force. Call it what it is. The euphemistically named GovOps is a civil liberties disaster waiting to happen by Rotimi Adioye. The name sounds like it's from West Africa, no offense. Uh, I did the best I could. And this article was in the Daily Beast. North Carolina is establishing a new police authority that Democrats are calling a sacred police force, much like the one in Florida that only answers to the governor. It grants the state the authority to investigate 
pretty much anything they want without any warrants based on possible instances of misfeasance, malfeasance, nonfeasance, mismanagement, waste, abuse, or illegal conduct. That's pretty wide open. Can anybody say Gestapo, KGB, Stasi, or any other secret police label from the past? This is what Republican-dominated states are coming to. Fascist states within a democracy operating with impunity. And basically what they're talking about here in this article, and uh, you know, you'd have to read the whole thing, but it's talking about is this new police force that answers to the state Republican legislatures can do whatever they want to with no warrant. They can just go into anybody's house, anybody's business, do whatever they want, and they don't need a warrant. They're just going to go where they want to go. And that's pretty scary. So much for civil rights. Governor Abbott wants the Texas legislature to empower all police to deport illegal immigrants. Is it constitutional? The Texas governor is vowing to protect the border and do what he says the federal government has failed to do. And this came out of the NewYorkSun.com. So this is from Maggie Heron, Heronsich. Oh, wow. I'm having trouble pronouncing names today. This is more about whether states like Texas can operate without any federal oversight on anything they want to do. In this case, eliminate all illegal immigrants, period. He's probably getting flack on the expense of busing them to big cities, so now they just want to send the Texas police, both local and state, to just deport them back across the border, regardless of their asylum status. It sounds like they want to round them up wherever they are in the state and bust them back to Mexico instead of L.A., Chicago, and New York. Maybe it's all about money. Maybe they don't have enough money to send the buses out to these big cities anymore. It's just cheaper to send them back across into Mexico. But basically, though, he wants to empower every member of the Texas police force, whether it's state police, local police, you name it, and start rounding people up and dumping them back across the border. And to be honest with you, given the legislature in Texas, he's probably going to get what he wants. So now I'm going to go back overseas again. Okay, this is another social injustice thing. I feel hopeless living in a country on the brink. This came out of BBC.com News World Asia. It's a pitiful story about Laos now under communism. The country is so indebted to China that they will likely never recover. Maybe that was a plan all along in this Belt Road Initiative. Make poor countries so indebted to China and that Beijing will come in and take over someday over indebtedness and the inability to pay. Is this a subtle way to make gain more territory, you think? And it's not just Laos, but China has been, you know, running around with this Belt Road Initiative, the, you know, Silk Way and whatever other label they want to call it. Um, and their, their front men are saying, oh, we just want to trade. We just want to get more trade and so on and so forth. Problem is, all these poor countries you know, over in Africa, Southeast Asia, and places like that are taking on these things that China's offering. But of course, the idea is they sign a contract to pay that money back. Well, they keep taking more, China keeps giving more, but eventually the bill's going to come due. So, what's going to happen when they can't pay? Is China going to come in and take over the government? Well, you know what? Southeast Asia, that's probably a good bet. So now, more social injustice. We're going to go across the world over here to Saudi Arabia. This came out of a story this morning. Revealed, Amazon linked to trafficking of workers in Saudi Arabia 
has come out of theguardian.com by Pramit Acharya and Michael Hudson. It's more about the Saudis looking the other way as predatory staffing companies recruit poor people from other countries to work in the Amazon warehouse in Riyadh. Stories about exploited workers from poor Nepal who were recruited to work for good wages and then found out that they weren't working for Amazon, but a predatory staffing company who didn't pay them the same as, as a direct hire would make and made them stay in horrific living conditions off-site. Then while they were at work, rated them for insufficient work and so on and so forth. Then they laid them off and made them stay in Saudi Arabia with no income by telling them they had to pay an additional large fee to return home. Modern-day slavery strikes again, this time in Jeff Bezos' backyard. So it goes to show you how little the corporate world really cares for their employees. It doesn't really matter where they are around the world. And what this amounts to is that these people from Nepal and probably other countries are paying like, you know, over $1,000 or more to these staffing companies in order for them to get hired for these jobs. So they pay to get the jobs. And then when they get laid off or fired or what have you, and they want to go home, they got to pay again huge sums of money in order for them to return home again. I mean, it's outrageous. And of course, now that Amazon knows about it, they're trying to get involved. They're trying to shut it down and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But you know how that's going to go. As soon as the news dies down and gets quiet again, everything go back to normal, and these predatory recruiters will be doing it all over again. This one is a, another story about this Chinese fishing fleet that's running all over the Pacific Ocean. So I got this one from www.semaphore.com by Morgan Schaupan. Stories about the U.S. is raising more concern about the Chinese fishing fleet as they plunder the Pacific Ocean and sell their ill-gotten fish to American seafood markets. It's about the slavery practices and fishing in sovereign waters of other countries and a lot of other things. Of course, the Chinese government denies everything. So, it's you know, it's more about what I told you guys before. There's this Chinese fleet. It's privately owned. And they're running around all over the Pacific Ocean. They're fishing in coastal waters off other countries without permission. And this includes South Pacific Islanders off the coast of South America and anywhere else they can get their hands on. Um, you know, they don't have to worry about local Coast Guard chasing them off too much. But what's going on is they are throwing out these massive nets. They're scraping up all the fish they can get their hands on, loading it up and taking it back to China. And then they turn around and sell this stuff to whoever will buy it. A lot of it comes to the United States. So think about this. These boats are stealing people out of fishing villages in Southeast Asia and in the South Pacific. And mostly in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Thailand, um, and, you know, any any places that have coastal waters. And they chain them up on these boats, make them work until they die or escape. You know, if these guys can escape off the boats, but mostly they work until they die um, and never see home again. And again, you know, they've been chased away from places uh, when possible. But China basically is saying, yeah, we don't know anything about this. But on the other hand, they're letting them do whatever they want to do. That's it's, it's pretty sad. Now we're going to go back across the world again. This one, another injustice story. Inquiry to open into claims British soldiers summarily killed 80 Afghans. Public inquiry into alleged actions of SAS units to begin amid a victim's family's pleas for truth 
to be uncovered. So if anybody doesn't know what's SAS, it's Special Army Soldiers or something like that. Special, they're basically English version of Special Operations here in the United States, um, you know, like American Delta Force and Green Berets. And this came out of the Guardian.com UK News. So this is from Dan Sabah. The British are under fire for the legacy bill regarding British soldiers' abuses in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. And now their SAS units are coming under investigation for murdering innocent Afghans when they were over there. How much you want to bet the SAS units get punished for anything? Will this become another legacy bill for their parliament? So how much, you know, the, I tell you what, I was stationed in, you know, British Indian Ocean Territories, uh, Diego Garcia in 1991 with a bunch of these SAU, SAS guys. And they pretty much got to do whatever they wanted to, okay? Now, granted, they were soldiers and they did soldierly things, but to be honest with you, because they were so special, they got to do a lot of whatever they wanted to do. And so here we go. Uh, apparently, they wiped out uh, a, you know, a village or two over there in Afghanistan in Helmand Province back in, the, you know, when they were over there in the war. And now they begin held to account for it. So the question is, what's the British government going to do? So it's not the British courts that's coming after them. It's the courts in Afghanistan and the world court. So what's going to happen? Are the British going to say, sorry, you can't punish our people. Uh, we're thumbing our nose at you, just like they did to Northern Ireland. How much you want to bet that's coming? Now we're going to get into right-wing elections, a little bit of more politics in some ways. This came from Europe. Far-right surge upends German state elections. Elections of Bavaria and Hess underscored frustration with the federal ruling coalition. His alternative for Germany made big gains. This came out of, come out of Politico.eu here. So it's, it's the beginning of a change to the right side of politics in Europe. First Slovakia, Poland, and now Germany. The EU governing board must be in a tether right now. It's like, not like this is any real surprise. France tried to go to the right here a while back. Um, it has been coming for a while, but everyone said, no, it'll be all right. Look what happened to Italy and Finland. Oops. Now we're going to wait and see how all these right-wing political parties are going to influence the governments as a whole and the EU itself over the next couple of years or so. You know, so yeah. You know, not only is the United States and Canada having issues with uh, extreme right-wing politics seems like more and more countries in Europe are also influencing, being influenced by this stuff. Is the whole world going to go right, go to the right? You know, at least the Western world anyway. You know, starting to look that way. Now, my last article is a is an environmental one dealing with fossil fuels. All producing countries claim fossil fuels are being stigmatized ahead of key UN climate talks. Oil giants, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and Iraq, say there is a case for us to be in oil and gas by Studi Mishra. This came out of the independent.co.uk. This is another instance of the pot calling the kettle black. The most prominent petrol states are complaining that their primary export is being maligned by the media ahead of these talks like COP28. Poor little babies. All they care about is keeping that liquid gold flowing as much as possible at the highest prices the markets will bear. They don't care about the environment. They're having way too much fun trying to control the world with their oil. Gold palaces, Rolls Royces, Bentleys, and any other expensive toys they want. 
They do not want to revert back to being poor desert Bedouins again. And that's what's driving a lot of this. Their, you know, their fathers and grandfathers grew up out in the desert living in tents and, and riding camels. And they full well know what that's like. They don't ever want to go back to that again. So they're going to do everything they can to mitigate any kind of uh, limits on fossil fuels. They want that oil to flow as much as possible. So that's the end of the first half. So now it's time for me to take a break. And while I'm on my break, listen to my little advertisement about my website. And I'll be back in a couple of minutes. I want to take this break to bring attention to my website, crombiha.com. You may use the link in the newsletters to find it for the first time, as the name is in Gaelic and a little hard to find unless you know what you're looking for. I also have the RSS feeder enabled, so if you like what I write, you can get a notice whenever I post something new. Within the website, there is a homepage where you can learn a little more about what Crumbiha means for a little bit of Irish culture and a little bit more about me in general. I have a blog page where I post copies of my online blog articles and stories and a copy of the weekly podcast newsletters. I also have a drop-down menu with links to both podcasts and Spotify, a page with links to my Medium and Substack pages, an ad page for my published books, and a contact page in case someone cares to leave a message. If you enjoy reading short stories, poetry, and blog articles from great writers around the world, I recommend Medium and Substack as great choices to find what you like to read about most and dive in as much as you want. Disclaimer, if you want to read my complete articles and stories in Medium.com, you will need to sign up for a subscription of $5 a month or $50 a year. I offer everything for free for one month in Substack. Then it's $5 a month or $30 a year with an advert to sign up on my web pages. These are the minimums these companies will allow me to charge, unfortunately. All the stories, poetry, and newsletters I write will be available in the blog section of my website if you don't want to subscribe to anything. If you like what you see, feel free to leave a message in the comment page anytime. I will respond very quickly via email. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the second half of the Village Oak Tree. This week I want to talk about the massive effort to ban so-called offensive books in public school libraries and a few public libraries across the United States. Although I must tell you, the U.S. is not the only country that has banned books. To give you examples, I offer North Korea, China, Hungary, Russia, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Pakistan, India, Venezuela, Honduras, El Salvador, and many others like them around the world. So, do you see a pattern here with all these countries? The United States is starting to get right in behind them. So it's with sadness that I tell everyone listening that these right-wing Christian moms who are harassing school boards, local town councils around the country, only have one thing in mind. Returning the federal public school system to a privatized system controlled by either the states, churches, or private institutions so that students and parents aren't left with many choices to educate their children or not at all if they decline the available choices. 
K through 12 schools for profit only benefit just the school owners. Schools run by the more conservative states and churches will have their curriculum severely restricted to align with their belief systems. If you don't like it, leave. In other liberal states, the current status quo will remain largely intact, which is good news for them. But what about the parents who want quality education for their kids in these poor rural states that have taken control of the schools? Texas, for example, wants to reinstall the Ten Commandments back into classrooms. Oklahoma is fighting its own attorney general over whether it's unconstitutional to use state public education money to fund a Catholic school. They want to bring back Christian prayers to the campuses and classrooms in their states. What about the children of Muslim parents or non-Christian believers? What are they supposed to do? Move to a state that allows them to worship wherever they please or not at all? What if they can't afford to leave? What are the kids going to do? I think that is, you know, I think that constitutes undue stress on the children and parents and would be against the law in, you know, most other democratic countries. The United States has already been undergoing a seismic cultural shift across the country. Ultra conservatives are migrating to extreme red states and vice versa for the liberals and LGBTQ plus peoples, those that can anyway. A lot of migrants in the country waiting on their asylum hearings are being forced to relocate now because of extreme anti-immigration laws being passed in certain states. All this coincides with the book banning. It doesn't require a whole lot of intelligence to figure out that if you take all the students in a state or a large region within a state, eliminate any books that might mention gay people, age-appropriate sex, African-American history in the U.S., or anything else they deem inappropriate for their children, those students will either be restricted to living within their current locality for the rest of their lives or suffer extreme culture shock when they finally graduate and venture out into the wide world. So I'm going to interject a, a news article I picked up today. And it fits right in here with this business with Texas. Texas has enacted even stronger laws regarding book banning this year. And it's a news story that came out from ProPublica. They're getting downright puritanical in these GOP-controlled states. Book bans in Texas spread as new state law takes effect. As Texas enters its third straight cool year of coordinated book banning activity, a growing number of districts are targeting library books. Caught in a dragnet, books featuring a naked crayon and one with a cartoon butt. And this, again, come out of ProPublica. The United States is already falling away behind their nation's peers in overall education standards around the world now. Imagine how bad it will become if all this book banning is allowed to stand. Those rural school districts banning all these books out of fear for their children will be stuck with largely illiterate young adults with only enough education to barely work on a farm. Maybe that's the plan. Maybe these rural states are so desperate to stop the tide of young people from leaving to find better lives in the blue state large cities. They are willing to dumb their kids down so that they aren't smart enough to go anywhere else but the family farms and ranches. Keep the girls at home with arranged marriages and force the boys to work on farms, passing the farms down through the generations. That may have worked back in the 19th and early 20th centuries, but not anymore. Farms and ranches are being gobbled up by corporations owned by guys like Bill Gates all over the place. Family farms are going bankrupt because they can't compete with corporate farming conglomerates. Doesn't seem to be stopping the family farmers from trying still until they can't. Has anyone bothered to ask the children what they want? I doubt that any of the people in the Moms for Liberty groups have asked their children what they want. 
I doubt if any of the conservative patriarchal men will ever ask the kids about the books being banned. It's all about control. You know, those parents who they're now calling helicopter parents, the parents who control every aspect of their children's lives, from the clothes, food, peer groups, education, anything else that might bring a minute amount of perceived harm to their children. These are the same parents who want their kids to go to the hand-picked colleges and universities that align with their beliefs or leave the nest to move down to the end of the dirt road the parents live on so grandma can babysit while the young men go to work on daddy's farm or ranch and the daughters end up working at Amazon, Dollar Tree, or Walmart. All of this is what's driving the book bans. Fear of their children learning something that will take them away from their parents. Fear that these already run down poor rural towns will evaporate even more and become ghost towns once the grandparents and current parents pass on. The blame goes square on the heads of the global corporate world, especially in the United States. They're the ones squeezing out the family farms and ranches, leaving the once thriving small towns to turn into largely empty husks of what they used to be. The days of mom and pop local stores are given away to Dollar Trees, Walmarts, and Costcos, and other corporate chains. All that poverty and near poverty is drawing a fear of food and shelter insecurity. And the only way the parents can exert any control over something is to come after the books. Of course, all it took was one set of moms who figured out how to get the system started off, and a social media account. The idea that these rural folks could control some aspect of their local government is empowering. Fighting back against the mighty government through the local school boards. It makes them feel powerful when they can take over school boards and implement their extreme lifestyle choices. It's the same feeling that the original European colonists felt when the rich elitists convinced a bunch of poor farmers and dentured servants in the 18th century that they could take on the mighty British Empire and win their freedom from English tyranny. The same feeling when the ruling southern plantation owners convinced the poor white farmers and sharecroppers that they could defeat the mighty northern armies of the Potomac to win their freedom to own slaves and do as they wished without Washington, D.C. telling them what to do. In each of these historical examples, the only ones who stood to benefit were the wealthy landowners, much like what is taking place in the U.S. right now. The only ones to stand to benefit from a largely uneducated populace are the corporations. They don't want overly educated general laborers. All they want are slugs who clock in, do the repetitive labors, and go home at the end of their shifts. Nobody should be thinking any lofty thoughts. The only books that are allowed are Dick and Jane readers, religious texts like the Bible, and other related books. Nothing with any substance to them. Turn everyone into largely minus near robots that pass on their jobs to their kids. This way, the corporations pay less in labor expenditures and make more profits for the executives and shareholders. The newer version of slave labor. Minimal expenditures and maximum profit margins. Of course, it helps when they can convince like-minded government officials to allow them to not pay any taxes on their profits or move their money offshore to avoid taxes altogether. This is a long view of why the wealthy billionaires are funding banning books. The ultimate goal is to create a minimally educated labor force that can be easily manipulated through fear to provide cheap labor by training them in muscle memory for repetitive jobs. Take away the books that might provide a little enlightenment and just allow them to learn the basics to teach them how to read and write enough to sign their names and read the restrictive signs in the workplaces. For anyone who steps up, and manages to bypass all those societal restrictions, you could be allowed to apply for a better education and a white-collar job at a corporate desk or a cubicle somewhere. As a freedom-loving country, or 
So we say we are. Sometimes lately I wonder about that. We need to fight this business of book banning. It's one of the major stepping tones towards fascism. I have no problem forcing librarians into doing their jobs and weeding out age-appropriate books. But other than that, let the kids decide what they want to read or not. If they complain about the content in a particular book, the librarian can tell them not to read it and go pick something else. If the parents object to a particular book on a shelf, they can refuse to let their kids read it. But for those who have no such issues, let the kids be kids. Don't ban books for all kids just because a small minority group of parents object to certain books. There are ways to keep their kids from reading what the parents don't want them to read without withholding the books from the other kids. That's what they have teachers and librarians for. Parents can notify the schools about their choices and hold the teachers and staff accountable if they fail in their task. If an objectionable book or subject is being taught in the classroom, the students can sit that part out with a permission slip from the parents. Does this make a teacher's job harder? You betcha. But that's the way things are going in North America. Canada is seeing a little of this in their more conservative provinces out west, Manitoba and Alberta mostly. The only other way is to run separate schools for liberal and conservative kids. And given how strapped all public schools in the U.S. are for funding, this is not a likely scenario. There are plenty of school districts in these rural areas that are struggling just to keep all the schools open as it is, just due to lack of children, and it's getting worse with all the internal migrations going on. The United States and maybe Canada are heading down the road to a division along cultural lines, separate regions with international borders with separate and differing ideologies. If that happens, the once mighty imperialistic United States will just be another second-tier country struggling to maintain a stable economy and feed its people, like the majority of the rest of the world. Who will rise up and fill the void? China? Russia? Something for everyone listening to this to think about. As Americans and Canadians, do we want to offer the torch of freedom as democratic countries, or do we let it all fall down around our ears and let it go? Even if the liberal-leaning states and provinces were to maintain their current style of government, there wouldn't be enough of them to maintain the old economic power that they had before any kind of a split-off. There is some small amount of good news in all this doom and gloom. Recent news stories are coming out about how some school districts are fighting back against these groups like Moms for Liberty. Maybe we'll all get lucky and push back against all this craziness and return to some sense of normal. Maybe a new normal, but one that's equal for everyone, not just for a few loud people trying to gain attention. So now I'm going to read this blog article from James Finn on book banning, and he wrote this in honor of the National Banned Books Week last week. And it's, you know, not really a holiday, but it's just a celebration of books. It's called School District Bans All Books with Gay Characters, an Iceberg Tip Move. This is National Banned Books Week, and we really have to talk by James Finn. Those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Do you believe that? A school superintendent in Charlotte County, Florida, recently ordered librarians to purge all school libraries and all classrooms of all books containing transgender and or gay characters, even if the books contain no sexual content, citing Florida's Don't Say Gay Law, officially the Florida Parental Rights and Education Act. He backed down slightly after public uproar but his edict is merely one spark in a book-banning bonfire consuming school libraries and public libraries across the U.S. This week is the American Libraries Association 41st Annual Banned Books Week, which has taken on new and frightening meaning in a nation once known for revering, revering 
education and learning. This year's theme is Let Freedom Read. Why does this freedom matter? It's personal for me. As I remembered this morning while reading a gut-wrenching essay by Sam Thomas, a gay man in the UK, whose classmates bullied him so terribly in school that he used to retreat to the boys' toilet to overeat and then perch. While reading, I couldn't help but remember the time I ran into a church restroom to vomit. I had just connected the dots of the preacher's sermon and realized I was one of the perverted sinners he was condemning. Reading on, I learned that Sam's mom was powerless to protect him from homophobic bullying and so were his teachers. A law called Section 28, similar to Don't Say Gay Laws, silenced his teachers. They were unable to address the anti-gay hatred behind Sam's bullying or even acknowledge it to offer other students, not even to the bullies themselves. Sam's teachers were forbidden by law from telling him or anyone that he was perfectly okay just the way he was. Could they give him a supportive book about LGBTQ people? Forget it. Section 28 made clear that positive books about queer people do not belong in schools. Most teachers were afraid to even try. Sound familiar, my fellow Americans? By the way, what do we call ourselves now? If we're not the land of the free anymore, can we search for another motto? Land of the book burners, perhaps. National Banned Books Week is no longer the quaint observance I used to see it as. I lived in Detroit for many years, a stone's throw from the city's magnificent Renaissance-style main library. I made it my hangout, barely noticing the centuries-old sculptures, phrases, and paintings that glorify education and books. I took for granted that Americans value learning, that we need no reminder of books' powerful societal good. I just grabbed great novels off shelves, slipped into the Skylet main reading room, make myself comfy in a plush sofa, and dive in. Is there any greater pleasure than just peering into a good book? Every October, the Detroit librarians would do up a big display for Banned Books Week, featuring books that used to be banned. Once in a while, I would glance at the display, clucking in disapproval over the bad old days when books about people like me and Sam were burned or banned. But that was so far in the past. Hadn't I, even as a child of a conservative family, been raised with an ethos that brooked no tolerance of book banning? Didn't all my respected adults teach me that such practices were unique to authoritarian regimes like the USSR, antithetic to life in the United States? Well, the UK repealed Section 28 on 18 November 2003. But exactly 20 years later, don't say gay laws are making Sam's sad reality come true for many U.S. students. Anti-LGBTQ bullying is surging in schools, even as books assuring kids that they're okay vanish from shelves. According to the American Library Association, more titles are banned for more Americans today than at any point in U.S. history. Of the top 10 most banned titles, seven made the list because they contain LGBTQ content. Many books that acknowledge past or present racist practices in U.S. society are also banned. Five of the books are on the most banned list containing both topics. Note, oppression is often intersectional. That's a fancy way of saying people often suffer mistreatment because they belong to more than one oppressed group at the same time. For example, a black gay kid or a Latino trans kid might be especially unlucky to find books that empower them and reflect their experiences. Official book bans and school bans are the tip of the iceberg. As journalist Kelly Jensen has carefully explored, outright bans don't fully capture our censorship problem. She says quiet censorship is ravaging U.S. libraries as librarians try to forestall controversy by not ordering new books, 
by removing certain books from the collection as needing replacement, then not replacing them. By relocating certain books to areas where the public will be unlikely or unable to access them, or by delisting certain books from library catalogs. Since the headlines we see about official book bans don't begin to show the true scope of the problem, she doesn't blame teachers and librarians. She says that many have been intimidated, bullied, into participating in quiet censorship. The New York Times says school libraries aren't the only problem. Book bans in regular public libraries surged this year, with more challenges and more books actually banned than ever. I should know. I live just a few miles away from that little town in Michigan that infamously defunded its public library because the library board refused requests to remove books about gay people from the shelves. What's going on? According to PEN America, three anti-LGBTQ groups are behind 86% of all book bans across the U.S. They're religiously motivated. They're determined to erase queer people from public life. They're comfortable attacking vulnerable kids. And they're funded by deep-pocketed conservative donor networks that demonize queer people as fundamentally immoral or mentally ill. One of those groups is Moms for Liberty, which sends book ban hit lists to chapters all over the country, apparently oblivious to the reality that banning books destroys personal liberty. Remember me throwing up in church. Books saved me, and I owe my high school librarian. He was a paunchy man, approaching 50, with a penchant for cardigans and bow ties that made him look like a puffy Fred Rogers, the gentle children's TV host on PBS. I called him Mr. K, like some kids did, because we didn't know how to wrap our tongues around his consonant-clustered Polish name. Mr. K was unmarried. As far as anyone knew, he never dated. His gentle manner of speaking and apparent disinterest in women earned him an unflattering moniker among the jock set, who presumed him to be fair game for the anti-gay mockery. Starting my second year of high school, Mr. K acquired a sidekick and apparent best friend, a woman. I soon came to know this new English teacher well because she became my debate coach. Her friendship with Mr. K did not quell rumors about his sexual orientation. Miss W was a tall young woman with a Jewish family name and a super skilled presence in pickup basketball games. She could sometimes effectively guard varsity boys, which did not make her popular. She often wore a star of David brooch, but her severe pants suits and cropped hair really got her targeted. She doesn't know if she's a man or a woman, kids would say. She's a dyke, but that's why she hangs out with Mr. K. I became pretty close to both of them, but neither ever came out to me or asked me to come out to them, even though I made them my role models. They were careful professionals, and we spoke in code, as one did in the 70s and 80s. Nevertheless, my high school library became my refuge, not because I loved the Indians and comfort like in Detroit, but because both my role models made sure I had books to read that would help me think for myself. Mr. K ordered positive books about or by gay people, think Giovanni's Room and the Front Runner, and somehow made sure I knew where to find them. In debate prep, Ms. W showed me how to use the library to do serious research, to dig for true facts about who I was and who I could become. Somehow she too always seemed to know what sort of journals and articles I needed to find to be healthy and safe. Would either of them be able to help me that way today? Sure, in some states, but not in Iowa where we lived then. The legislature there recently passed one of the strictest laws in the nation banning books in school libraries. By the text of that law, both the front runner and Giovanni's Rome have to go, despite their literary value, because they frankly, but respectively, address gay sexuality. Neither book is considered remotely obscene. 
Both are considered literary masterpieces. Both contain rather less description of sex than many literary masterpieces. Neither will be found in high school libraries in states that are banning LGBTQ books. Giovanni's Rome by James Baldwin, a black man and one of America's foremost literary giants, is on Miles for Liberty's national hate list. So, jaw-droppingly, is the diary of Anne Frank, which you can read about in this story by Fan Wilde. High school students have thrilled to Baldwin's stirring words for decades, but in much of the United States, no more. He was gay. He wrote about it. So that's the end of that as far as the book banners care. Baldwin is banned in many school libraries in most of Florida, as well as in Indiana, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas, and plenty of other Republican-dominated states. That Florida superintendent who ordered all books with gay trans characters off shelves, he retreated slightly after public outrage focused on him. He allowed that librarians could carefully select such books, but for high school libraries only, ensuring that all such books are free of sexuality and otherwise age-appropriate, whatever that means. I think it means quiet censorship. It means gay and trans high school students are not going to find books that conclude uplift or empower them. Middle school students are out in the cold, period. And I'm pretty sure their teachers are in the same boat Sam's UK teachers found themselves in, too afraid to address LGBTQ issues, even when extreme bullying is going on because of anti-LGBTQ hatred. Hatred stirred up by the same people banning the books. It's National Banned Books Week, and we as a nation face a cusp. North Carolina actually banned schools from observing Banned Books Week this year. Then, in a remarkable feat of Orwellian doublespeak, pronounced that it was a ban, even though schools are still forbidden from practically observing it. Doesn't that just say it all? We need books more than ever, lest we fall deeper into the kind of totalitarianism Orwell warned about. Lest we forget our history. Lest we empower bullies. Lest we forget that we are a people raised to respect personal freedom, and true liberty, empowered by diversity and free exchange of ideas. What will you do to re resist book banning? Will you stand up and be counted? Will you take a stand? Will you be part of the solution? We can't resist without you. And that's the end of his article. And that's all I've got for you this week. So again, I hope I've enlightened you with my choices of stories and thoughts. Um, I'm going to close this out with my last thought of the week. Would you as parents support an enhanced book screening process for your local public schools and libraries instead of outright book banning so no one can read whatever they wish. I think the freedom to read whatever books you want should go right along with freedom of speech as we currently have in our Constitution. Aren't they very similar in nature? I would like to thank you for listening to the show today. I hope you enjoyed it. You'll return again for another episode of The Village Oak Tree. Feel free to share this with your friends and relations. The more you share, the more we can convince enough people to make the world a better place to live in. Just search for The Village Oak Tree in your favorite podcast app. I hope I've achieved my goal on helping you feel like we've been sitting under The Village Oak Tree today. As a Shawnee Key, I want to continue to travel to your digital village every week to bring you something that might bring you a smile or make you think a little bit after we part for the day. As I say goodbye this week, I wish to leave you with this Irish blessing as you go about your day. May your troubles be less, and your blessings be more, and nothing but happiness go through your door. Shlongo foil, which means goodbye for now in Irish.